0: It is so good to be here with all of you. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Thank you for participating. Uh, if we can get that first slide of my deck. Next one, please. Next slide, please. There you go. Who here recognizes this, right? I remember my parents, they had an old computer. It was a Windows Anybody want to take a guess? Windows what? It was a Windows 95. I know, gasp. Uh, and, you know, there was no internet. These are the pre-internet days, and we didn't have a lot of games. It was really this and Solitaire were the two options. And, you know, I was probably five or six and uh, and when we played this. And I recently seen a, a, a reel on this on Instagram, and I sent it to one of my friends that I grew up with. And he he responded. He's saying, "Bro, I still don't know how to play this game, <laughs> right?" And we none of us knew how to play this game because we there was no instructions. There's no internet. There's nothing that explains it. No Google. And you know, you just kind of click around. You know that the mines are bad, but that's really really all we understood. So we got bored very quickly. I think to this day, I still have never won a game of Minesweeper, um, and you know because. I didn't have a clear criteria of success, right? Of what does success look like, a measurement. Today, we are going to be looking at what the Christ-centered life looks like. We can go to the next slide. And a big part of a Christ-centered life is having the correct measure of success. So today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, so open up your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 19 through 26, but let me recap quickly before we go into those passages What we've covered so far, we're in a series uh, for Philippians, and we are continuing it. This is, I believe, the third sermon we're already doing. The first chunk we looked at are verses 1 through 11, and that's Paul's greeting to the Philippians. We see his love for the Philippians, and, and he prays for them. Then in verses 12 through 18, we see Paul talks about his imprisonment. And, some, and, and people were emboldened by his imprisonment. Some were preaching because they loved Paul and they were encouraged by Paul. Others didn't like Paul and they were preaching Christ, but as a way to hurt Paul. And Paul said, I don't care. As long as Christ is proclaimed, I don't care. And here we find ourselves now. In Philippians 1, verses at the very end of 18, and we'll read through 26. Let's read together. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die, it's gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what we see here is Paul is almost, he's at a crossroads. And we get to, get, we get to peer into the mind of Paul and see how he is three, thinking through his decisions. And there is one thing that's extremely clear from this passage. That Paul is, is living a Christ-centered life. And so that's the question we're going to try to answer today. Is what does a Christ-centered life look like? And the very first thing... That we see is that the Christ-centered life desires Christ. And the first kind of subheading. There's, I've got two here. It's, we see the Christ-centered life desires to honor Christ. Verses 18 through 19. Let's read again. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul is in prison. He's, people are attacking him, speaking against him. He doesn't care because Christ is being preached. And then he says that through your prayers and by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I will be delivered. And at first glance, what does it seem he is referring to? He says, "If he, I'm in prison and you're praying for me and I know I will be delivered. What is he referring to? Getting out of jail, right? Getting the monopoly, get out of jail, free card. And he's saying, yes, I know. And let's keep reading. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. And again, it seems like he's talking about getting out of prison, but then the second half of verse 20, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Wait, wait, what? Life or Death. Paul is saying he is confident that he will be delivered. By the way, the Greek word for delivered here is the same exact word in the New Testament for the word saved, for salvation. He's saying, I know I will be saved. I will not be ashamed because Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So this entire time, we think Paul is talking about wanting to get out of prison, but what he's actually saying is he doesn't care. Whether he lives or he dies, his definition of success, his definition of deliverance, definition of salvation is not getting out of prison or staying in prison. It's not even life or death. It's whether Christ will be honored in his body. That's his definition of success. So the first thing we see is the Christ-centered life desires to honor Christ. And honoring Christ... Bringing glory to Jesus becomes the measure of one's life. It, it, it becomes the ruler with which we determine whether my life was worth living or not. The only thing that mattered to Paul at the end of the day was, was Jesus glorified in my body. Nothing else. Everything else can go wrong. The worst thing possible can happen to me. I could even die, right? That, that's the worst thing that can happen to us in this life. We die. And for him, all, he ma- all, ma- all the only thing that mattered was whether Christ was honored in his body. So here's a very practical application for us to ask ourselves, what is the standard, the measure, the ruler that I use to measure my life? Because that standard, as we will see, really, really matters. If we go to this next slide right here, it took me a while. um, I'm glad it's in German so you're not distracted by what it says. But anybody here ever try to write on a piece of paper without lines? you you know what happens what happens in about like 5 or 6 lines down right you, Minds start curving down like this and they get lower and lower unless you've really practiced right and we see that here they start going down and down and down until you got to reset do a space and then like okay i'm going to try really hard i'm going to do another straight line and and you start doing that and, and same thing happens why does that happen Because your ruler of what is straight, your measure of what is a straight line is always changing, right? Every time you write a line, that becomes your standard of success. That becomes your ruler. It's floating along, whereas with the lined, you know, ruled piece of paper, it's always objective. It never changes, You could say the same thing is true in construction, right? Imagine you're trying to build something and you don't have a measuring tape. Well, you cut off a stick and then you use that to do it and then you accidentally use that stick so you use the other one that you measured from it and and if you keep doing that, all of a sudden you're going to have a very, very different project, a very different fence or house or whatever it is because you don't have an objective measurement. The question here for all of us is, Well, first of all, the measure, the ruler that we use to measure the worth of our lives determines what we aim for. Our measure of success determines the kind of life that we will build. And the question to ask, what is my ruler What is the measure of my life? By what criteria, when I come home and my head hits the pillow, do I determine whether I lived a good day or I lived a bad day? What is that criteria? What is that ruler? What is that measurement? Is it keeping up with my peers? Is it surpassing my peers? Is it just fitting in and being liked by other people? Is it having a huge retirement, having kids, having the picture perfect family, getting a degree, being financially free? What is my measure of success? For Paul, it was honoring Christ. What is mine? The next subpoint under desiring Christ is we see that the Christ-centered life seeks to desires to be with Christ. We're going to return to verses 21 and 22 in a second. But let's read verse 23. He writes, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. We see here that this is a man who doesn't just want to honor Christ. He doesn't just want to do a good job you know, for the boss and then clock out and leave. This is someone who wants to actually be with Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be with Christ? It means to go on to the next world, right? The, the, the higher dimension of existence, to be physically present with Jesus, to see him face to face. And notice that Paul, he's, he's a human just like all of us, right? He is desiring something that is better, not worse. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Oftentimes we might look at people like Paul and we might think, man, Paul, I don't know how you can deny yourself like that. How do, you, how do you do it? How do you have so much self-will, strength to deny yourself like that? Or maybe we look at people who talk about desiring to be with Jesus or wanting to be in heaven. We think, how? How? I don't understand. How can you actually want that? Are you just pretending? Are you just saying that? But here's the truth, church. All people, all of us, we all gravitate towards that which we believe is better. Towards that which we believe in our heart of hearts that is better. We always make the best decision possible, right? Name me one decision that you've ever made in your life that was not the best possible. I'm not talking about the best, the best possible decision at that moment. You might have not liked that decision, but you picked it because it was the best possible decision in that moment. All of us operate that way, including Paul. And the reason Paul can say that my desire is to depart, in other words, to die, and to be with Jesus is because he truly believes that being with Jesus is better than this life here on earth. And the question for all of us here is, have I understood that? In my heart of hearts, have I grasped the reality, the unseen reality that Paul firmly had a grasp on and millions of other Christians that that gave away their lives? Have I laid hold of this reality in my heart? Have I understood in the inner parts of my heart that it truly is better to depart and be with Christ. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about theoretically. Everyone agrees that heaven is theoretically better, right? But most of us, the way we live is, well, I know heaven is better, but I can't even imagine it, so, so I'm going to, you know what? When I get there, I'll enjoy it, and I'll, and I'll, I'll enjoy it. But for Paul, that's, he didn't have that disconnect. For Paul, he believed that it was better. He desired to be with Christ. And when we don't have that desire, when we don't lay hold of that, with the eyes of faith, the Christian life will seem like a drag. It will feel like an unnatural climb uphill And I'm not saying that the Christian life is easy when you understand that, but it's very different in a real way. Or maybe there are some of us sitting here and we understood, but we've just forgotten because we are forgetful creatures, are we not? We, we see the glories of God one day and we are captivated by it and then maybe in a day, in a, in a week or a month or a year, we just lose sight of that and, and all it is is just, just this here on earth and that's all and we've, we don't see heaven anymore. We don't see that it is better to be with Christ. We are so quickly just dazzled by the shiniest object that recently crosses our path. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He said, if we can go to the next slide, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and intimacy and ambition When infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum. Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I find this reality a perfect description of me. And I'm sure of many of us here. You see, to, to be with Jesus in heaven, according to the Bible, what does it mean? It means to be in a place where we are no longer affected by death. There is no more effects of death at all. There's no more separation, there's no more mourning, there's no more loss, there's no more physical or emotional suffering, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more confusion, there is no more exhaustion, there are no more goodbyes, no more fighting, no more tension, no inner struggles. There's no pull of temptation, there's no more sin, there's no more guilt, there's no more shame. And all of this is not just because it's some good place, some new place that Jesus made, but because Jesus is there at the center of it all and he is animating it all and giving it life. That's why his holiness, right? In his presence, there can be no sin. And if there is no sin, then there is no effects of sin. And Jesus will make a new heaven and a new earth, and we will live with him forever. And Jesus, church, I'm here to remind all of us that he is the truest friend. He is the most trusted friend. He is the closest companion that we have. He is the most pleasant friend, the most interesting friend, the funniest friend, the most influential friend, the most positive aspects of any friend that you've ever experienced is just a little shadow of the kind of friend and brother that Jesus is for us and every day we are going to wake up in heaven and we are going to run to his house and wait at his door because we will not we will never have enough of of hearing him speak and seeing him in person all the time and his soul is infinite so we will never grow tired we will never become bored with him we will be in heaven forever beholding more and more, moment by moment, the ever-increasing depth of his beauty and his glory. His glory will put the night sky that we look at when we go camping to shame. His glory. And Paul, he kept in his heart and in his mind how much better it truly will be with Jesus Christ And the question here is, for us right now, as you are sitting, listening to this message, what am I desiring? Like, if I were to pause, just click pause on everything that's going on in your head, what is it that I want? Where is my desiring heading towards? If I really, really give it some honest thought, I understand we get distracted, but is my desire ultimately to be with Christ do I believe that it is actually better? Or is it to be in this world, just to enjoy it? And are we seeking his presence day by day? So, we've seen that the Christ-centered life desires Christ. The next point we see, that the Christ-centered life serves Christ. Verse 21, Jesus, uh, Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Who here heard this quote before? Right? We've, we've, all of us have seen this. This is a very popular verse, and there's a good reason for it being quoted. But the question, my question, when I started preparing this message, is what is it, what does it actually mean? What is to live is Christ mean? Because Christ is a person, and this doesn't make grammatical sense. It's like saying to speak is Bob. What, is, what, is, what does that mean, right? Or, 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 or to live is mom. You know, just fill in the blank. It doesn't make sense grammatically. And we can take guesses and all of that, but this time, thankfully, we don't need to because Paul actually goes on and defines. I'm sure he knows what, what he wrote might seem a little ambiguous, so he explains exactly what he means by that in the very next verse. Verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh... defining it, right? That means fruitful labor for me. So to live as Christ equals, if we're doing equations here, to live as Christ equals serving Jesus and producing fruit. The Christ-centered life seeks to serve Jesus, taking action that is useful to our Lord. This is very important because The Christ-centered life is not just a life that has the right feelings in the inside, which is very important. But it's also a life that has external action to it, right? The the monks of Eastern religions, they seek to, to run away, to go up on the mountain, to isolate, to hide, right? Achieve some sort of state of nirvana, right? That is their greatest form of good. Then there's other religions that are all about just doing good deeds, doing good things. And it pays no regard to what goes on inside here. But the Christ-centered life, it's, it's, it's the whole life. It's the complete life. All of it is included starting with a love for God, a real faith in Jesus, a desire for him. But it doesn't stop there. There's also external actions that accompany those desires. And look at the way that Paul lived. First Corinthians 15.10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul worked. Paul worked extremely hard. He took massive action to serve our Lord. You see, we as people, we, we love to simplify things, right? The one secret that you need, right? The one missing secret, the one missing key. We just love to simplify. I love simplifying things. But sometimes we can't simplify things, right? Some will say, just, just serve God, Well, that can turn into legalism, right? Others will say, all that matters is your heart. Just love God and that's it. Well, oftentimes that becomes an excuse for sin, for self-centered living. True Christianity always has both. It starts with a love for God and a faith in Jesus, but it always manifests itself, pours out in the form of serving God, of bearing good fruit. In fact... Serving was so important to Paul, serving Jesus, so important that he described his life as to live is Christ. To live is to bear good fruit for Jesus. <clears throat> and this idea of being a servant to God. And you know, actually, if we look in the Greek New Testament, the word for servant that's oftentimes translated as servant in English is actually the word slave, doulos, right? It is core to the identity of the one who is living a Christ-centered life. The authors of the New Testament, Paul, James, James, Peter, Jude. When they start a lot of their letters, if you read, they'll say, servants of Jesus Christ. Well, if you look at the Greek, it it actually says, slaves of Jesus Christ. Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. And and the slavery that's being referred to here has nothing to do with American slavery, and the horrors there has nothing to do with that. I know we have a lot of baggage with that. But the point here, is that the people, the apostles, they saw themselves as being owned by and living for and working for someone other than their own selves, specifically Jesus Christ. And this perspective isn't unique to just the apostles. Jesus himself spoke this way. Look at what kind of humility we ought to have. We always we think Jesus is just always so kind and soft and gentle, and he is all of those things, but he is so much more well-rounded and complex. Look at the parable that he gives us. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus says, will any one of you who has a servant, again, the Greek word there is slave, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit at the table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what is our duty. That's the humility that we as Christians ought to carry before our Lord. Again, I understand for us as Americans, slavery has only negative connotations. This is talking about something different. And I do want to add that Yes, we as Christians ought to see ourselves as slaves to the Lord. It's not the complete picture of our identity, right? Uh, In the Bible, the Bible teaches that no one is truly free, right? You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. Those are the only two options that we have. And, And sin is a cruel master, Sin is the abusive master that, that destroys and kills those whom it possesses and it deceives as well. Whereas God, he is kind, he is loving, he cares for his own and also Our identity is more complete. Yes, we are servants to him. We are his slaves, but also we are his friends. We are his sons. We are his daughters. We are literally the bride of Christ, the love of Christ. So the slave of God is an important part of our identity, but he's not the complete image of our identity. So just looked at the first half of verse 22 let's just take a step back and read verse 21 through 24 together again verse 21 for to me to live is christ and to die is gain if i am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me yet which i shall choose i cannot tell i'm hard pressed between the two my desire is to depart and be with christ for that's far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul, we see he's stuck, right? He's at a crossroads. One is stay and keep serving Jesus by helping other churches. The second one, go and enjoy eternity with Jesus. And he says, and which one I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I'm, I'm stuck. To die for him is gain. His heart is longing to already be with Jesus away from sin and the corruption of sin. And he understands that is far better. But look at what he decides. He resolves in his heart. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So the question here is, if being with Christ is so good, why does Paul choose to stay? Now, I don't think he's, as he's writing this, he's contemplating, like, suicide, right? Like, do I depart and be with Christ, uh, or, or do I stay with you? I don't think there's a guy standing with a sword, you know, over his head and saying, what do you want? You want to die? You want me to send you to Jesus right now? Or, you know, like, it's totally your choice. Like, I don't think he was sitting there and he had a real choice I think he was thinking through it hypothetically, and, and his decision-making process is a very important teaching moment for us. And his reason for staying, notice, it's it's more necessary on your account and for the fruitful labor. You see, Paul understands that he is gonna be with Jesus no matter what. He's gonna be with Jesus, and he knows that he will be in his presence very shortly. And in his mind, he knew he did not have much time to live, right? He was already probably past the average lifespan of people back in those days. And Paul understands that once he's with Jesus, once he crosses over the threshold of eternity, he can no longer serve the church on earth. You know, the the illustration that came to my mind as I was thinking about this is imagine you go on your lunch break. You walk into your favorite place to eat. So whatever that is, you walk in, you stand, you see there's a huge line. You're standing in line. Fifteen minutes later, you are right there and you're about to, you know, the the person in front of you is about to finish ordering. You're about to, you're already, your mouth is watering. You've already thought through everything you're going to order. And then you hear the little bell ring. You turn around and you see it's your friend's that you haven't seen in years, out of state, and they had to come because of you know some surprise visit, and you turn around and you see them, and you have a split-second decision, like, I've waited all this time, these 15 minutes, like, am I gonna go order and just go sit down by myself and eat? Or am I going to turn around, give them a big hug, and join them in line with them, and delay me feasting on my favorite food for another 15 minutes? Of course that's what we're gonna do, right? Like, we're going to eat soon, no matter what. And so Paul chooses to go to the back of the line, to be there with the Philippians, with the church. He says, I know I'm going to get this food soon anyway. I know where I'm going to be. It's just a matter of time. So I want to serve and make the most of this time right now. The one last thing I want to point out on this uh, point of serving Christ is that... Notice that for Paul, the easier and the better option would have been to depart and be with Christ. And I'm sure if Instagram was a thing back in the day and he did a a survey on his story and he asked all the popular influencers of today, like, what should I do? Should I depart and be with Christ or should I stay and keep serving? I'm sure most of the votes would be, hey, Depart, go, go. Paul, do what's best for you. You're old, you're tired. Church, do we realize that all the lashings that he received on his back, they left scars? You realize that all those scars did not heal up the way scars do, right? His whole back was probably completely scarred up in a way that caused chronic pain his entire life, every single day of his life. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Right? He's living in daily pain. He's been stoned. His bones have been broken. He's living in this pain. And said, Paul, you've served your time. Jesus is happy already. He is more than happy. Just, just go. Just go. Be with Christ. Rest. And yet Paul decides to keep going for the sake of other people. And here's what I want to talk about is so often we fall for the trap of self-care. Don't get me wrong. I think self-care is good and it has its place. Self-care is an important counter-reaction to people-pleasing, right? If we've got people-pleasing on this side, self-care is the counter-reaction to that and the burnout that comes from people-pleasing. But it is possible to also overreact and take it too far. Right? And it's funny because people pleasing, what is people pleasing? Doing things out of a fear of what people will think about me, right? That's a sin. And it must be dealt with, must be repented of and fought like any other sin. But an overreaction to this sin is also sin the sin of not caring about people at all. Just caring about me myself and i right and we can get this balance right when we like paul make it our goal to please not others not ourselves but the lord jesus christ Every time our goal is to please Jesus, church, I'm telling you, this is like a a Christian life hack. I don't like that phrase, but it really is. Like Whenever you are stuck, whether it be in a relationship with people and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to behave, Do do I act angry or do I just ignore it? Make it your goal to please Christ. Lord, I just want to do whatever is pleasing to you, and you'll be blown away. The way Lord, the Lord will give you the wisdom to react properly. When pleasing God is our goal, we will get this balance right. We will not do things out of a fear of other people's opinions, which oftentimes leads to burnout, does it not? And you know, it's funny because people-pleasing, it makes it seem like we're focused on other people, but people-pleasing is actually just another form of self-love. Right? I don't want people to think bad about me and therefore I'm going to burn out and try to please them so they don't think anything bad about me. It's just a different variation of self-love. And on the other hand, we won't, if we seek to honor Christ, we won't be so self-centered that we just live for ourselves and blatantly disregard others. Or to put it in terms of self-care, Self-care is justified, and it is a good thing when it helps us keep serving God and caring for others for the glory of God. If we are slaves of Christ, then self-care is important only for the purpose of serving Jesus even more ecclesiastes 10 10 says if the iron and imagine an axe right if the iron is dull and one does not sharpen the edge he must use more strength but wisdom helps one to succeed the axe is not sharpened for the purpose of just having a sharp axe no one cares about having, your, having a sharp axe if it just sits on the shelf and it never does anything, right? The purpose of sharpening the axe is to apply it and to use it to cut wood easier, faster, better. We are tools in the hands of God, are we not? And tools must be maintained in order that they can continue producing for God. Self-care in that context makes sense. But the goal is always pleasing God. And now for our last point. It's the shortest one. We've talked about desiring Christ. We've talked about serving Christ. And lastly, the Christ-centered life seeks to point others to Christ. Read with me, church, verses 25 through 26. Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul resolves to press on for the sake of the Philippians, for their growth and their joy in Jesus. He wants to serve them by pointing them back to Jesus, by giving them a reason to glory in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine this man's heart? I want to come and I just want to help these people just exult in Jesus more and more. The Christ-centered life does not focus on its own self. It's not content to stay there. The Christ-centered life, like we've talked about, is not a monk that runs away into the mountains and just meditates all day long or the Christian version of just reading the Bible all day long. By the way, we should read All of us should read more. But it's not just an all-day study. The Christ-centered life starts in the heart, but it overflows in blessings to other people that life it points others to Jesus and it desires for other people to come to know Jesus and to grow in Jesus. Christianity is not a life, is not a religion that can be lived in isolation. When Jesus was leaving some of his very last words, what were they? What were they, church? Go therefore and make disciples. Go, not stay not, hey, if, everyone, if, you know, if anyone comes to you, tell them. No, it says, go, go. Not everybody is an evangelist. Not everyone has that gift, I understand. But we cannot be content with just me and my relationship with God. And you know what? I don't care if everyone else in this whole world goes to hell in a handbasket. We, we can't have that kind of heart. We must desire for others to come to know Jesus, to grow in Jesus. And it's not just a life that's focused on other people. There's a lot of nonprofits in this world that are focused on other people, but they're not Christian. As I call the band up, I just I want to close with this saying the Christ-centered life is focused on pointing other people to Jesus because the person that's living the Christ-centered life, they understand that there is nothing better for any human being than to be close to Jesus. There's nothing better. Being with Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to anyone. You might ask why. Well, because in Jesus, we find the solution to our greatest problem. We all love life, right? And life contains all the good things that we enjoy. But because of our sin, we are cut off from the source of life, from the spring of life. And only through Jesus can our sin be removed, forgiven, and dealt with. And we can be reconnected with God. And so now, instead of judgment, we now have the hopeful, hopeful expectation of being in eternal joy with God. That's what Jesus offers us when we trust in him. But more than that, yes, he gives us forgiveness of all of our sins and eternal life. But he also promises here on earth today to fill us. In Christ, we are restored. We are freed from sin. He takes the broken pieces of our lives and he puts them together in a way we never thought or could ever imagine that they can be reconstructed. That is what Jesus does to people here today, and he's continuing to do that, and that's what we celebrated today in him saving 39 people and reconstructing their lives and giving them the promise of eternity when we baptize these 39 people. If you haven't yet come to know Christ, trust in him. Believe in him. Trust him like you would a best friend, closest friend and he will forgive you. He will fulfill you. And why wouldn't a Christ-centered life desire that, that experience for others around us? So, in conclusion, we've covered a lot of ground. We've, we've talked about the Christ-centered life in summary. One, desires Christ. Two, the Christ-centered life serves Christ. And lastly, it points others to Christ. And Let's, let's stand as we pray. I'm going to give you a minute of response time and a few questions to ask ourselves. What is the measure of success in my life? How do I determine whether, my, whether today was a good day or a bad day? And the second question is what is my self-identity in Christ? How do I see myself actually in relation to Jesus? And is being a do loss slave to him? Is it part of that identity? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We fall before you. And as we go through this passage, as these words that you've left to us through the Holy Spirit, God, I'm convicted. I pray bring my life, bring our lives into a greater conformity to you, Jesus. I pray that you would be at the center of our lives and that our heart's cry would be, whether by life or by death, Christ is honored in my body. Please help us, Lord. And for those where you're not even in their field of view, you're not even on the horizon, open their eyes. That they would see, that they would know you, who you are, and love you, and live for you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.